Brothers and sisters, the text for the proclamation of the gospel this afternoon is God's word as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find it beginning on page 522 of your book of praise. And here begins the second main part of this confession, and that is concerning our deliverance, our deliverance in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is asked and answered, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can a mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. In response to the proclamation of the word, let us sing from Psalm 25, the stanzas 6 and 10. Who then fears the Lord sincerely, walking with him day by day? Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. That was that cry of Job, that poor wretch of a man, as he sat on the ash heap, on the dump, you could say today, tormented by the accusations of his supposed friends. Accusations that came down to this. There must be a multitude of terrible skeletons in your closet, Job, for God to treat you as he has. For God does no injury to those who lead an upright life. You must deserve the punishment he's handing out to you. Job, however, declared that he did not maintain his innocence in vain. He was convinced that God, yes, is righteous, but that he, Job, had not sinned, not to the extent that the Lord was punishing him for some evil that he knew within himself that he did not commit. And yet, Job actually did not speak very prudently it would have been better for him to say with David in Psalm 39, I will put a muzzle in my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. For it's better to suffer in silence than to be too bold in our speaking. It's better to cast yourself at the Lord's feet and to beg for mercy than to stand your ground and insist indeed on your innocence. 
And nevertheless, in Job's words, we also recognize a heart-rending cry for vindication. For vindication by someone greater than himself. You hear a plea for a declaration of innocence by a deliverer who is at the same time a judge. And now God in his grace revealed himself to be that deliverer. For in Job's next words, I think of those beautiful words in chapter 19, we hear him confessing, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Even though scholars are quite convinced that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job may have lived in the days of Abraham, and yet Job here declares that he already knows about the resurrection of the dead. And now in Lord's Day 5, the Catechism begins to speak of this mediator and our deliverance from sin by his blood. And we hear that in question and answer 15, although the other questions and answers as well point us really in that direction. For here we continue to confess the justice of God. And yet, in this Lord's Day, we speak actually in a different way about that justice or righteousness than we did in the previous Lord's Days. For there... We confessed God's justice and right and his unconditional demand that we admit our sin and guilt. But here we raise our hand, as it were, and we ask if God would not open the way of that deliverance in the way of his justice, not indeed going outside of his justice, but no, in the way of his justice. So let us then this afternoon hear the gospel concerning the revelation of God's singular road of our deliverance. And then we hear that that road is in the first place the expression of his love and grace. In the second place, it is also the road that rejects all misleading hope. And in the third place, that road is the direction to the door of our salvation, that door of which we read just a little bit in the Gospel according to John. The revelation of God's singular road of our deliverance. First of all, the expression of God's love and grace. Brothers and sisters, to what extent do you and I actually realize the depth of our sin and misery? It's possible that we live in such a way that if someone would be, just, someone would be justified in confronting us with this accusation, you really seem to be so unconscious concerning your sins, for in practice, it doesn't appear that that sin really bothers you that much. Sure, I hear you praying for forgiveness, but does that mean that you really are sorry for having offended the Lord? Do you understand how much your sins have grieved your Lord and hurt your neighbor? The Reverend A.J. van Zuylichum in the Netherlands in his commentary on this Lord's Day says, we do well to take such reproof seriously. When you do, you may indeed ask yourself the question, am I, am I sufficiently conscious of my sins? Oh, and then if you are, such a question, if you answer it honestly, can cause fear to arise in your heart. 
You may find yourself in a similar situation as Job was when that man Eliphaz the Temanite addressed him. He reminded Job how things were with him in the past, and he said in effect, Job, at that line, time you were a pillar in the church, but now that you've come in a pinch, it appears that you abandon your former faith. Now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. The question we may ask is, was that really so? Was Job insufficiently conscious of his sinful state? Is it perhaps so that the Lord wanted him to come to that realization by bringing all that disaster on him? Is that not the reason why Eliphaz mentioned that vision that he had, a strange vision of a man standing before him in the middle of the night saying, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? It was an accusation, really. Although he speaks of a man, he's speaking of Job. And the Vanzilicum goes on to mention the possibility that we too could go unwittingly wrong. We could get it wrong, and we could get awful ideas about our God. Ideas, for instance, that the reformer Martin Luther had before he discovered in Romans, especially about the truth about God's righteousness. Joe, Martin Luther went around for a long, long time thinking that he should punish himself more and more because he saw God as a kind of a boogeyman. Indeed, a terrible judge who was going to get him unless indeed he lived a perfect life. Even his mentor there in the monastery even had to say to him, Luther, Martin, you know, you do not have to confess sins of which indeed you have, that are not sins. Luther did that. So indeed, it could be that we get it wrong and we get awful ideas about God. You could give and get the impression that God is always on the prowl, just can't wait to get us down, looking to accuse us of more and more sins. And Job appeared to have that impression, as in the depth of his sadness, he says to God, and I quote here from chapter 7, verses 16b and then 17, he says to God, God, leave me alone. Leave me alone. My days have no meaning. What is man that you examine him every morning and you test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? Yes, we too can have similar questions, especially when a whole heap of disappointments have come upon us. And yet they are questions to which the Lord, Lord's Day 5, gives comforting, even uplifting answers. Only consider this long question 12. It's not a question in which the believer only escapes, only seeks to escape God's wrath. Yes, that also could have been on the mind of those pious authors of the catechism. They knew something about the terror of God's anger, and yet we cannot, we may not be like Cain, Oh, yes, who also was. The children will know the story about Cain and how concerned he was about the punishment that he felt was hanging over his head. And yet that man never recognized God's justice in his sentence, nor did he long for restored communion with him, whom he had despised by killing his brother Abel. 
And so there may be others who certainly don't want to go to hell, but as they may be heard to say, if there is a heaven, I would like to go there. And yet, we need to humble ourselves and listen to the reproach of God's justice to the very end. Though you and I might wish to escape God's anger, and that doesn't mean that we necessarily cherish God's grace, that we know about that grace and love indeed to hear more about it and the communion of his love, his grace for that wonderful undeserved favor of our God is not opposed to God's justice. There are parents who unfortunately educate their children yeah, in justice. They insist on right and wrong and on towing the line and perhaps even justly so, but they do not know of compassion the compassion that also children need to hear about and know about. Oftentimes, God's justice and grace are mentioned in the same breath. Someone has pointed to Psalm 33, verse 5. There it says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. There you hear it. God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Justice and love, they're not opposed to each other. They're two sides of the same coin. And, so, and Proverbs 10 verse 2 tells us, righteousness, justice, delivers us from death. It's not a put-down. It's not a nail in one's coffin, so to speak. No. God's righteousness and justice, they simply mean that he's faithful to his word. That's what the authors had in mind here. He's faithful to his word. He sticks to that word, both to his blessings and to his curse. We heard something about that this morning. Both his grace and his justice speak of his sovereignty. His sovereignty. He is the great I am. And he doesn't go back on his word. Not even if the whole world, so to speak, should go back on their word and try to twist God's word to suit their liking. He maintains it. Psalm 102 says, You are the same yesterday and today and forever. Another commentator has rightly said, Woe to that church if she would preach heaven outside of God's wondrous grace outside of his grace, as if you and I could gain eternal life in heaven without that grace. Woe to her if she would slight God's justice in maintaining his word. And so we mustn't read our Bibles and attend the church services with no other purpose than to get to heaven. The object of loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind is not to escape hell as such. No, his grace and mercy and the fellowship of his love, that must dominate our desire. Of course, that includes the fact that we will escape God's wrath by his grace, that we will receive heavenly glory, but all that is the fruit of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And you can hear of this yearning for mercy Throughout this Lord's Day, when you listen close, also in the closing words of question 12, how can we escape and be again received into God's favor? Not just how can we escape, 
how can we again be received into God's favor, into the fellowship, the communion of his love? It's the yearning of the heart of a believer who knows that he or she is called to cling to the justice of God, but that that justice is not emptied of his love, but it fully includes it. We need to remember that the preceding Lord's days did not put punishment because of God's wrath in the center. It speaks rather of the love of God in creating us in his image and likeness right from the beginning, practically, in Lord's Day 2 and then in 3. And that first great commandment of which Lord's Day 2 speaks is not an expression of our love, but it is God's love. John, in one of his letters, says, we love because he first loved us. You cannot speak about our love except we first speak about the love of God in granting us forgiveness of our sins, in treating us as his covenant people. He didn't place man under his thumb or under his foot. No, but he made man his royal ambassador. He placed our first parents and we in them at his side that they might indeed reflect and reciprocate God's great love in all that they did. And even after we and our first parents messed it all up, when we fell so very deeply incited on the side of the devil of all individuals, then the Lord God did not stop loving us. Immediately he promises a savior, his one and only son, to save those who had so grievously offended him. And those who hear and honor that great love of God had their hearts pierced when they heard the preaching of that justice of God. And so they and so we have to confess it, Lord, we fell. It was my sin and my misery in which I plunged, myself that made me guilty. That's why we also sang from Psalm 32 just now. And there is, of course, also Psalm 51 and Psalm 52 and others. God maintains his claim on our life, a claim of loving obedience to him. Despite all mankind's attempts, his devious ways to try to escape it, in maintaining his justice, the Lord reveals how much he loves us, what we mean to him. For his justice is not the pointing of a long, icy finger, nor is it a condemning look. It's an expression of his grace. He would show us the only way of salvation, the only way of salvation. He would have us reject all dead-end roads, all vain philosophies. He'd reject us, direct us to Jesus Christ, who is the only way. Did he not say, I am the way and the truth and the life? He is a faithful, compassionate judge, and he doesn't leave us hanging, guessing as to the way of our deliverance. No, we may think of the form for baptism, which doesn't fail to stress that God made an eternal covenant of grace with believers and their children. Time and again you hear of that deliverance through being washed in Christ's blood, Repeatedly you hear of Christ's sacrifice, God's righteous judgment falling on him that we might be set free. So then how can we escape God's wrath and again be received into his favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. 
Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another, says the Lord's Day. If you and I were no more than lackeys, slaves, no account pieces of dust to him, then God would not keep on insisting on his justice. He'd simply do away with us, toss us out. But we are his children, his covenant children, once made by his loving, purposeful hand that we might live to the praise of his name. And so we must bear the punishment. We must bear the punishment. Atonement must be made for our sins. God does not go back on his word. The soul, he says, that sins shall die. Ezekiel 18, 20. God cannot, he will not rest before the expectations of his love are fully fulfilled. And so the authors of our catechism cherish that loving justice of God. That's why they speak already here in Lord's Day 5 of the possibility of a full payment by ourselves, yes, we owe it by ourselves, or by another. Yes, by another. How, how did they get to think or to know of that other, another? Well, consider the proof texts that underlie this confession. There's Isaiah 53, verse 11, and Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. It's God's sure word. And that was God's revelation to Isaiah and to Israel, though they were lost in sin and in misery and were guilty of much shameful living. And then Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do, I quote here from the NIV, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. There you hear, indeed, what we confess in the last question and answer in this Lord's Day, why the Lord Jesus Christ had to be true God and true man. In the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. The law of God, though holy and good, could not save us. It was weakened by our flesh, says Paul. That means it was shown to lack the power to save because all we did and all we do today is to run into it time and time again. It's like a good law which says 50 kilometers an hour and no more, yet one that's constantly disobeyed day after day by thousands of motorists. Does that sign 50 kilometers an hour save anyone? No, they just run into it, you and I. And what the law could not do, however, God did by sending his son as our substitute. And so upholding, so maintaining his just demands through the willing sacrifice of his one and only son in our place. Praise God from whom such grace flows. Praise God for maintaining his justice, not giving in to our sinful flesh, like the rock that he is providing the means for our escape and our reconciliation, our restoration by means of the Son. But then, 
That same Lord would have us reject all misleading hopes, all avenues that are full of potholes of abject failure, a myriad of dead ends to which man in his sinful flesh is so prone to look. Let us hear that in the second place. We've come to this question, can we ourselves make this payment? Here's a question, isn't it? We, we'd like to ask, what about if you, if, you, if you live a really good life? Some people, indeed, we think they, they can do that. There, there have been people who said, well, yeah, today I, 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 I went two steps forward. Yeah, yeah it's true, I, I, I stepped one back, but, but yet I'm, I'm, I'm on the right road. And perhaps in time, I can do it. I can, I can reach a perfection of sorts. But the answer here is curt, very short and to the point. Breaks in pieces every false hope that we might harbor in our hearts, every hope concerning our capacity to replace God's grace and to go it alone. Certainly not. Certainly not. Period. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Going it alone, making the payment by human means, human execution, oh, it does appear to be man's favorite proposition. And yet it is doomed to failure. It's doomed to disappointment and rejection. It has been said that if in pursuit of your goal you take a wrong road, the faster and more determined you are to walk that road, and the further you'll end up from your goal. How true that is. Only consider where man's declaration of independence from God and his word has gotten him. A decade ago, or two ago, there were brilliant philosophers who pronounced a sentence on God. They said, God is dead. God is dead. We don't need him in this postmodern an age where man has shown himself to be the measure of all things. And yet, what is the result? Look at your news broadcasts on television or open your newspaper. Mankind is a hopeless, enormous mess in the lives of so many people. A world supposedly freed from the restriction of rules and absolutes Yet it's a world absolutely destined for judgment. And the same dead end is the result of those who pretend man is capable of self-justification. Oh, those who cherish this philosophy, they, they sometimes are dedicated and sincere, though they are misguided Christians. There are those who have punished their bodies to the point of death in a vain attempt to earn the justification that they know they need. And there have been large-scale movements, I think only of the movement called pietism, in which people sought to appease the wrath of God and regain his favor by leading an ascetic, a pious life. And yet, so often such movements, with all their appeal to the masses, since they offer a do-it-yourself salvation, are a monstrosity to the Lord. Not that piety is wrong. No, as Christians, we all ought to live a pious, that is, an obedient kind of life, but not to think that therefore we can appease God's wrath by our very pious living. It dispenses with God's grace, 
they'd replace the Lamb of God with an altar to his majesty man. For all their pious intentions, someone has rightly said that the pietistic person is the greatest enemy of the cross of Christ. For when it comes down to it, he appears not to need the cross of Christ. He tries to replace Christ by his piety. And our sober catechism would have us shut off this vain attempt to gain salvation. We can't pay. That's the answer. We can't pay. It's as simple as that. For daily we increase our debt. Our best works and mine are really like sinful rags. Indeed, if we we only heap up our sins and sow our debts before God's throne, how can then we then expect our holy righteous judge who can't stand the thoughts of any evil to say, I'm satisfied, you've paid your debt in full. Well then, says the catechism, what about another creature, a mere creature? In the original language, in German, as it was written, It says basically a naked creature, a completely mere creature. An angel, perhaps? An animal? What about a robot? Oh, some beautiful robots are made these days. Maybe they can be made with artificial intelligence. Maybe they can take the place and and then they, they can do the payment for us. Could not one of these or maybe a combination of them pay for us? Maybe one of those could be programmed or persuaded to take our place to bear God's wrath and to reconcile us to God. And again, the catechism says no. No, quite quickly, resolutely. And it gives two reasons for this, why this is impossible. God will not punish another creature for the sin that man has committed. Once again, we're reminded of what God says in Ezekiel 18 and Hebrews 2. Man has paid, man has sinned, so man must pay the price. And the Catechism names only two places, yet there are many more that could be cited. Therefore, man must pay, because he is the guilty one. It's a hallmark, again, of God's justice that he keeps to his word. Flesh and blood mankind owe the debt. Flesh and blood mankind must pay Human beings grieve God's love, and they do so today every time you and I sin. We grieve God once again, and therefore man must live up to God's expectations when he created us. And then there's a second reason that reminds us of the wrath of God. Are we still conscious of the wrath of God? Oh, if we were more conscious of it, perhaps you and I, think only of myself, would not be so quick to do things that indeed anger the Lord and disappoint him. It's a terrible anger. The Bible speaks of it. It can swallow up whole cities at will, whole nations in a moment. What's left of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about when the Lord indeed brought his fire from heaven upon them? Even scientists tell us today that the ground where they think indeed those two cities stood, there's still smoke coming out of the ground. Yeah, there are bitumen tar pits around there. But the smoke that's coming out of the ground, that's all that is there, that is visible of those cities. Who can withstand his indignation, says the prophet Nahum. His anger, his wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. 
Nahum 1, verse 6. Here and there you see that wrath displayed in the Bible. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal anger. He stored up that anger through the ages. How many sins do you think have mankind committed through the ages? How angry. God, who can't stand one filthy joke, one blasphemous word, how angry he must be with all, indeed, the bitterness and the sins and the deceitfulness and the haughtiness and the gossip and the pride that we, indeed, are prone to. What kind of anger would that be? When God is angry, all creation shudders. His voice, says the psalmist, is enough to lay the forest bare. And so, we are thrown back on the justice of God. The offer must come, yes indeed, from the earth, from mankind. Man sinned. The offer of man's life in its entirety. So where have we arrived? No, not by the process of speculation, but by the gift of God's revelation, which says there is no one righteous. No, not one. And therefore we must seek for our justification with someone who is at one and the same time a true and righteous man, yet one who is more powerful, yes, who is also true God. That, we come in another Lord's Day to that, that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. Humankind could not have borne that wrath of God by himself. And that's the, destruction, the direction God would have us pursue. That's the road we must travel. That's the road which is the one that takes us to the door. The only door through whom we have to go in order that we might have life everlasting. We can't pay. No mere creature can pay. It appears that all the avenues are closed to us. And yet that is not so, for Lord's Day 5 heads the chapter concerning our deliverance. It's the Lord's Day of the open door. And that door with a capital D, of whom we read in John 10, verse 7, the door which is a gift of heaven. While we were busy knocking on closed doors, God in his gracious counsel provides a door that gives us access to salvation. Provides Jesus Christ, the mediator who is at one and the same time true man and true God. And it remains an amazing gift of his grace that while indeed the rocks, so to speak, are still smoldering in paradise because of man's sin, what did God do? Right there, right there. He offers his one and only son. One who will come to crush, he said, the serpent's head. Although he himself indeed also would be killed in the process. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were busy knocking on closed doors, God provides the open door. Jesus Christ did what was impossible for us to do. In the midst of sustaining the burden of God's anger, he remained true to God. I delight to do your will, he said, in the quotation 
of one of the Psalms. I delight to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. That's Jesus Christ. He is gracious indeed. And we see it before our eyes. We even get to taste it every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated. For God so loved the world, his creation which he had once made so beautiful, that he sent his one and only Son, that believing in him we might have eternal life. No, he was not out to protect and to hang on to his life. While the Father shoved him into the outer darkness, into that unspeakable anguish and pain and terror that we confess in Lord's Day 16. No, what does he do? Instead of hanging on to his life, he hangs on to us. He hangs on to every one of his true children. Lives that are so dear to him. What does Paul say about it in Romans 5? You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. He demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not imagine how hard it must have been for him when in the garden of Gethsemane, that darkness, his friends indeed having gone to sleep on him, he wrestled with the cup. My God, if it is possible, my Father, let this cup pass from me. Because the Lord God realized not just that he was going to die on the cross, a physical death, but that his Father was pushing him away to taste indeed the terrors, the agony of hell. He who had not committed ever one sin, yet he didn't hang on to his life. He gave it freely. And surely this great love of God, it must meet with thankfulness in us and in our lives. It's true it's not until the third chapter of the Catechism that we get to hear more about thankfulness, about gratitude. But surely we must have it here when indeed we already get to know of the way of deliverance. It may not leave us to do no more than smile and say, oh, that's quite lovely, thank you. This realization should be etched on our minds and on our hearts. Therefore, I may not live a superficial life anymore. How can I do that? Superficial, just going through the motions. I'm united with this Christ who gave himself, united with him in his death. He died for me, and he lives for me, and he comes for me. Therefore, there, there he stood with a crown of thorns. There he hung, stripped, vilified, not only, suffering the agony of hell for me. Stripped, half-naked, he whose father in heaven, indeed, the very first thing he did for us and for our first parents in paradise after our fall into sin was to cover them. He made clothes for them so that, indeed, their nakedness could not be sin. And the Son of God, hanging on the cross, yeah, they gambled over his clothes, that seamless dress, that seamless cloak, hung half-naked, stripped, vilified, and suffering the agony of hell for me. By his stripes I'm healed. Therefore, we must humble ourselves, brothers and sisters. We must do so. 
We must cherish this door and then walk in his way. Walk in his love and in his mercy, his justice and in obedience, shunning the flesh but living in and by the Spirit. Will he not fill us with awe and with wonder? Deliverance with God remains a matter of justice, a justice that sets us free. God's justice, to which his one and only Son submitted to grant us life. Life for you and for me now and forevermore. Amen.